Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert, we're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised, press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. What have we been watching? What have we been watching indeed? That's something I ask myself every night before I go to sleep. We've been watching Boomtown Season 2, which came out from September 26, 2003 until December 28, 2003. Quite a run. Quite a run. Quite a lengthy run. It was canceled after just six episodes. 
But unfortunately, those six episodes will remain seared into my brain. And also, let's note that it was actually, its fate was pretty much sealed after just two episodes. After the first two episodes aired, uh, it vanished from the schedule and then came back for two days in late December to burn off the remaining episodes they had finished and no further episodes were produced. Boomtown! Boomtown. And... <laughs> As a spoiler, just from a creative point of <laughs> oh, view. Oh, no, you're spoiling after, a 20-year-old show? After I saw the first few minutes of the first episode of the season, I would have canceled it, too. I would have, yeah. I would have given the creator a disappointed look. <laughs> where where do, do, uh, we, do we begin no, with an overview? Well, yeah, let's, before, before, I think I need to, I think, I mean, I, I maybe you don't feel this way, but I think I need to apologize. I think I have an apology to give to Boomtown season one, okay? Because this experience, watching both seasons, I, I gave Boomtown season one a really hard time in our last review. I was talking about how it's so dopey and it takes itself so seriously and it's just doofy. And I was really, give, you know, I, I was I was being pretty You harsh. were really on fire. You were calling for the creatives to be drawn and quartered? Yeah, I was. Burned alive at the stake? I was channeling. I was shocked. I was bloody on you. I was cha channeling some Tudor shit right there because I was just, cocky and i'm older now i'm many years older you can't see me because you're listening to a podcast but i'm actually a wizened old crone having watched boomtown season two it just took all my remaining youth and energy and i have the maturity with age now that i can say that boomtown season one was fine it was fine it was the early 2000s we were trying to heal as a nation after 9-11. Maybe, maybe that's where some of the optimism was coming from. Maybe it was just, maybe it was a little cheesy, but God bless it, you know? I've seen Boomtown season two right now. I've seen what could have been. So I have a lot of regret for being so hard on Boomtown season one. Because you know what? It really wasn't that bad comparatively. It's like when you eat at a kind of a mediocre restaurant, you're kind of like, oh, this, is, this isn't really fancy. They didn't really quick cook my burger quite right. And then like you go somewhere else and the, the new place gives you massive diarrhea for days. You're like, what the fuck was I complaining about? I didn't get a perfect burger, whatever. But the, the yeah, this is the diarrhea place. <laughs> Season two. Yeah, so when they brought it back, some network executives uh, demanded some changes. Uh, one bizarre change was they apparently wanted there to be a lot of music in the background. It was very... How would you describe that music? Stock music. Stock music. The music version of, like, the Wilhelm scream. Like, just totally canned. Feels like it would be a little over the top in, like, an elevator setting. Like, not real music. They could have just had, like... An, in, an incidental score that fit the tone of the series or or like some kind just not have music maybe but it would be like like it felt like the you know like for everyone like who's had like a wii you know like the the uh, video game system console they have that kind of really cheesy music dun 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 i mean that seemed like subtle and tasteful and like better than what they're playing in here it was like it was like m m music that you would find on your cell phone circa like 2006 for like a possible ringtone it was really bad and it was noticeably so and it felt very loud and in your face to the point of like i feel like it was for me at least drowning out some of the dialogue <laughs> which okay i guess it so it did have some good points yeah 
They they knew what they were. Th- that sound mixer knew what he was doing. Like, oh, maybe they don't need to hear this one. <laughs> God, I mean, do you have any apology? Do you feel like having watched season two that you can see season one in a different light now? I, I don't grade on a curve. <laughs> you know, if, if you punch me in the groin and then the next day someone kicks me in the groin, I'm not going to go up and say, you know, I was wrong to say you were you were bad for punching me in the groin. That was a blessing. So like hiring that guy to kick you in the groin just didn't make up for anything. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> Damn. Well, it sucks to find out this way. <laughs> Airing our dirty laundry still here on the going program. Still gonna go make a police report later. <laughs> oh, we shouldn't joke about domestic violence, but anyway, uh, this show, yeah, this show just so brings out ch- the worst. Uh, another change was there was a reporter character in season one who was dropped in season two. That was fine. She sucked, so whatever. Yeah, did that character didn't do anything for me? Uh, and then we'll discuss this, I guess, in a moment. They added uh, a strong female character, which I guess is good, but it was uh, Vanessa Williams. And I, I really had trouble understanding who her character was and what function she played. Yeah, it was a situation where I, I really didn't blame Vanessa Williams, but it was like she was just written to be the most bland female leader archetype possible. Like, she wears pretty pantsuits, but she's still tough. Like, that kind of shit. Like, what? Huh? Like, who is she? And there were lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of scenes where Vanessa Williams and the cops were walking around the station. Those talking. were my favorite scenes. No, it was not just the station. They were specifically walking as a group, a group of like, let's say like six people walking up and down a staircase in the middle of the police office. And sometimes just walking around the station. They were always walking. But no, they were. Kevin, they were always, I don't want to de-emphasize this, they were always on the fucking staircase. Can you imagine if you're trying, you know, you're the new intern on the job, the chief wants the papers that you need to get them, you just came out of the copy room, and these fucking assholes are holding court on the goddamn stairs? How mad do you think, I mean, what, I'd be like, they're like, excuse me, like pointedly staring at all these people. Rude and ridiculous. This is why they, this is why God created conference rooms. Am I crazy? Uh oh, <laughs> they're trying to do like almost. It wasn't it famous, famous like famously West Wing did that. I never watched West Wing, but they always had those walk and talk shots where people are walking and talking and getting exposition out of the way, but they're moving so it like tricks you into thinking it's more interesting than it is. And this is trying to do that, but unfortunately, nothing's interesting, and they use it so much. Um, Another trend in this season kind of related to what Kevin was saying about people walking around is that in in past uh, in the previous season, uh, they tried to experiment with more nonlinear storytelling. So you'd see things from a bunch of different people's perspectives, the different cops, the prosecutor, the reporter, the EMT, the criminals, the victims. Everyone gets a say. They totally almost completely do away with that. This episode, you know, this uh, season, it kind of feels totally discarded, but. The result of that is suddenly it goes from a bunch of kind of realistically separated people who are all doing their own thing and seeing an event from different perspectives to like they have to cram all the cops 
into the same scene. So it feels like all of a sudden these guys who didn't even really like each other before are totally buddy buddy in a way that feels totally unearned and unbelievable. And they're like constantly walking around together, hanging out together. And it just, it takes on almost a comedic feel because you're like, why are, why are all these people jammed in here? (laughs) Isn't that very odd? It's very odd. It's almost surreal watching it. Having seen season one. Like, I think if you just tuned into season two, you'd be like, oh, it's kind of a shitty cop show. But if you watch season one and then watch season two, you're like, what? Like, it feels like um, it, it, it's an odd situation. And for some reason, there's a number of episodes where at least one of the regulars either doesn't appear or just makes a cameo appearance, which I found odd. You, you Sometimes it almost made sense. Sometimes it would be like one of the main detectives is barely in the show. So the other detective is working with Vanessa Williams for some reason. It's, I, it was odd. Without any sense of rank or what people's jobs are. You know, season one established uh, Ray and Tom to patrol cops as sort of like guys who are typically going on patrol. They have their beat. They're kind of looking around for stuff. If something's going down, they're going to help pursue a suspect or deal with an emergency situation. But generally, they're sort of reactive to what is going on on their beat. And suddenly... In, in this season, no explanation, uh, Vanessa Williams is, like, elevating Ray to come be, like, her investigative assistant on stuff. Or, or having in Tom... In one episode, in one yeah. episode, it's Tom. Yeah. They're basically not working together anymore. They're just, they're just interns for Vanessa Williams. And it's like, that's fine, but, like, when you're trying to... When you're purporting to be sort of a realistic take on the cop genre... And, and kind of give us a real sense of what it would be like inside the precinct and all these different roles and how detectives differ from patrol cops and what that means. It, it, it just starts feeling like everything's meaningless because it's like and the show is contriving itself to include characters who wouldn't be at, in, in these discussions, in these high-level investigations. Are we ready to dive into the episodes? There's only six of them, so thank God we won't be here long. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's a it's a merciful merciful short death at least. So the first episode, and, and this probably bothered me a lot more than it should. It takes place is meant to take place in the month of October, but the characters are leaving the funeral of someone who was murdered in March. <laughs> the funeral home had really shitty service. So that that bothered me. And also, there was somebody who I believe in May went away for a 28-day stay in rehab. And we see that he's still in rehab now in October. So all of that confused me. But in any case, so these two cops have been killed in a bank robbery. In season one. In season one. And so now our two detectives and our two patrol officers, who they've been some tension between them. They decide to do a secret investigation off the books so they can find out for themselves who killed these cops. And they suspect it's this one mysterious gangster. And uh, Yeah, it's as stupid as Kevin explained it. The, the real culprits are these two uh, female safe crackers who go around doing all these high-end robberies. And a mole tipped them off uh, that we saw play out in the season one. But now we figure out who the real robbers are and who they're working for. And we don't want to reveal any secrets, but one of the, the robbers is played by Rebecca De Mornay. And one of us, when we were younger, thought Rebecca De Mornay was very hot. 
He's stammering right now, so I think maybe those feelings still linger. Is that right, mister? We're not saying which one of us had those, <laughs> had that uh, view, but that person was interested to see Miss DeMornay in another role. What was that role, Kevin, if you had to speculate? We're not saying which one of us. So they do this secret off the books investigation. Kevin, why, why are you sweating bullets? And in the midst of this secret off the book investigation, they as they break into the apartment of Rebecca de Mornay, mm. Mm. they like make a mistake and they're nearly caught and they blunder into this other investigation that's being run by Vanessa Williams. So that's her introduction to the to the crew. She's in a different precinct, so she is uh, you know, kind of unfamiliar to them, but she basically outranks them all. She's like a top-tier detective, meaning she doesn't have an, a, a, a partner, and she's also allowed to like run investigations. And so as a result of all this, one of our detectives, I believe it was Joel, comes to her, and she says, you're, you're probably worried I'm going to tell your boss that you and your partner and these two unqualified patrol officers were blundering into my investigation. You'd probably want to beg me on your hands and knees not to tell that. And Joel says, no, actually, here's my idea. You go to my boss. You tell him that we did this. And then you insist that me and my partner and these two unqualified patrol officers work with you on the team. And she said, well, you know, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, Vanessa Williams, who's this uh, responsible, by-the-book, uh, top detective, one of the top people in her precinct, catches a bunch of idiots bumbling around a crime scene and instead of reporting them she's like i want you to work for me because you know you did such a good job not getting caught by the person you were illegally spying on and the only reason you weren't caught is because i basically almost blew my entire investigation so that makes a lot of sense also you're all very emotionally involved in this investigation because and i'd friends, love to see that yeah your friends were murdered so that's great that's great. That that definitely means you're totally not emotionally compromised in this matter. And I can't stress enough that two of you are patrol officers with no real experience in investigation at all. Just a bunch of fucking bumblers. And one of those patrol officers has a reputation for corruption. That's what I love to see. Vista Heights, baby! Forget it, Kevin. It's Boomtown! <laughs> it's so terrible. then they all work together and uh, cut, cut to the chase. They work together and they are able to arrest the uh, the blonde hottie that Kevin had a crush on. No, we're not saying which one of us. No, it could be anyone. Any could one of us who watched the remake of In God Created Woman back on cable TV in the early 90s. Yeah, could have been me. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't alive then, but <laughs> pretty hot movie, right? <laughs> she can't stop talking about uh it. Jesus Christ. Not to harp on this episode too much, but here's what really... We talked about the cops working together, which is against everyone's character and the, the original construct of the show. But you also have the fact that they just totally throw all the characterization that they built up about all those, all those four detectives uh, out the window. And the most egregious example is... Uh, uh, Donnie Wahlberg, who plays uh, Detective Joel Williams. Where do we know Donnie Wahlberg from? That name sounds familiar. Wasn't he in Menudo? Menudo? Was he in Menudo or was he in Boys to Men? Uh, doesn't matter. We I can don't Google know. It later. I'm not going to look it up because I trust you. <laughs> and he, 
he he's in the first season he's played by like, as like a ton of the top detective in his precinct he's like very good they bring him in for a lot of high profile things he is very quiet he's a bit uh tense professionally where he kind of like thinks he's a little bit better than a lot of the cops uh, and he, he has a tragic backstory because his wife is suicidal after their baby died. So it's like he's kind of a tortured character. And I really will say Wahlberg does a really good performance, I think, in the first season. But you kind of get a sense like this is a man who's very professional. His profession means a lot to him. He wants to help victims. But he also is struggling to balance, uh, you know, his life at home. In this one, he's a renegade, off-the-books cop who will do whatever it takes to avenge the death of characters we don't know or care about. We're just informed about how important they are all of a sudden, even though they were killed in season one and we didn't really get any information about them. And uh, who is willing to bend the rules and act in a corrupt and illegal manner to do what he has to do. And also one who, when at some point his, his wife and child are threatened by the main uh, mobster bad guy, at one point he literally lures the mobster's elderly mother out somewhere, d- disables her car in some way, and then poses as a good bystander, a good Samaritan who helps her and then uses that opportunity to threaten the mobster when he comes over. And it's like, listen, like, for as many flaws as season one had, one of the things that I really liked was Donnie Wahlberg's character and sort of seeing this person who's going through a hard time but is still trying to do his best in his job to put some good out into the world and having them do this to him just felt like, like whoever was writing this or guiding this or producing this didn't even understand what the, what the positives of season season one were. I mean, it was, it was just embarrassing. And then the other, I mean, uh, McKelty, uh, Williams, is that the actor's name who did, uh, yeah, Bob, uh, fearless Smith, the other, his partner, he's just given nothing to do. He just is, he's just another yes man who's saying yes to Joel's ideas. And then the patrol cops are there to round out the quartet. And it's like, this is just a big mishmash. They're not even, they're not even at cross purposes or struggling to work together. It's just like, oh, we're on the same team. Let's go. We're all doing the same thing now. And it's like, good Lord. (sighs) So the end of the episode, uh, Rebecca de Mornay shoots her partner. I'm sure she had a good reason. And then <laughs> hashtag free Rebecca de Mornay. <laughs> and then she's arrested and episode ends. Are we wait for episode two? Yes. Episode two uh basically deals with the trial of the Rebecca de Mornay character. And we were David McNorris, our alcoholic ADA, comes back into the fray. Yeah, played by the ever great Neil McDonough. And we meet his father. Ugh, it made me want to kill myself. <laughs> Can I, I mean, this, uh, I, I, I mentioned on past episodes, I don't want to hammer it in, but I'm an alcoholic. So I, you know, I, I kind of pay attention when people are portraying alcoholics on TV. There were some things I, I thought in general that the, the David McNorris character, character, uh, across seasons got right. And there's some things that I think got really dead wrong. And this, this episode felt like a slap in the face, you know, he's newly sober and it's not to say you can't portray somebody who's struggling with sobriety. I'm not saying that. But this episode sort of acts like it's an uplifting thing where, like, yes, he, he kind of won his battle against addiction. And it, it was like the things he's doing, like, he, he's 
for one, he keeps a bottle of like uh, Jameson's in his car. And I think the audience is supposed to take it as some sort of meaningful thing, like when a smoker keeps a single cigarette in their wallet to remind them of all the badness. But it just it just rubbed me the wrong way. It's like this guy's fresh out of rehab and he's looking longingly at the Jameson. And we literally like like three times across the episode, he or someone else pours himself a drink and then he's holding it to his lips and then something happens and he has to put it down. And it's like, this is just, this, this ain't cute. He's not sober. He's a dry drunk. He's not like, this is not uplifting or meaningful. This is a person who's still struggling, but the episode puts like sappy music behind it. So we're expected to be like, wow, like this is great for him. And like, that's not, that's not healthy. This ain't good. And one thing we know about McNorris is he doesn't like or respect his father and is afraid of turning out like his father. So we meet his father, who's played by Stacy Keach, TV's Mike Hammer. <laughs> and TV's Mike Hammer tells his son, by the way, this big trial that's coming up, well, why don't you throw it? And his son says, oh, okay. TV's Mike Hammer is in league with some kind of a sketchy characters even though i will say that tv's mike hammer is based out in boston so any sort of like if the character of mcnorris's father had been someone who's like based out in california and mcnorris like owes his political career to them that might have felt like some actual conflict because it's like if i don't do what my dad says it could have negative repercussions on me and my career is already on thin ice because the alcoholism thing but you know instead it's like it's like if your if your relatives from the opposite coast call and say, "Why don't you come over for Thanksgiving?" Like you like, kind of, oh, or maybe I won't. Maybe I'll just stay here with my family. Like you don't you don't need to worry that much. Like where's the where's the real pressure coming from? We already know he doesn't like or respect his father. He talks openly about how he much he fucking can't stand his father. But then his father shows up, and again, I think that's meant to be. I think that's meant to be complex writing where it's like, oh, you have negative feelings toward your family, but you still do what they say because you don't know any better. But we basically, I mean, for most of his life, this guy seems to have been doing the opposite of his dad, except in the in the adultery thing and the alcoholism thing. So it just, we don't even know what his relationship with, da- with his dad is like until now. So it just feels like a kind of a curveball out of nowhere, frankly. And then in addition to that, uh, Rebecca de Mornay also has some strategies of her own to try to get exonerated. And one of these strategies is that before she was arrested, she bumped into Vanessa Williams on the street and dropped some papers and then made out with Vanessa Williams as somebody took pictures. And frankly, I thought that was a fascinating strategy. Would have loved to have seen that explored more in depth. Yeah, you seem to be following this Rebecca uh, de Mornay uh, characterization pretty closely, Kevin. And I noticed in the notes you wrote the the, the phrase, uh, Kevin de Mornay, like 32 times. What, what, Want to comment on what you were going for with that? Do you see yourself in this character? But see, then I thought <laughs> it, the, the business about her making out with Vanessa Williams and that being memorialized in photos, I thought that was an interesting meta commentary on the fact that Vanessa Williams was defrocked as Miss America because of scandalous photos, some of which involved her with another woman. More like because of sexism, because people used revenge porn on her, and she was a victim in that situation, and she deserves all the apologies for that disgrace. So I wondered how she felt about participating in this bizarre meta retelling of it. 
Maybe she was just like, nobody's going to watch this anyway, so whatever. <laughs> In any case, as fascinating as Mr. Mornay's strategy was, it went nowhere. And ultimately, McNorris was willing to throw the trial, but his dad didn't let him. Yeah, his dad basically threw throwing the trial. So it wasn't, you know, David McNorris is supposed to be the episode's protagonist, but it's not his actions or his growth as a character that make a difference in the end. He is willing to grovel before his awful father and basically, you know, instead of him finally standing up to the old man and telling him to get lost, we see the old man actually being the the, the morally strong character and basically saying, and in, and again, like you could say, well, that's just realistic or whatever, but it's not it's not written well. It's not written in a satisfying way. It's not written in a complicated way. It's just stupid. It's just bad writing. Yes. Boomtown. 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 See, if you listen to the past uh, episode that we did on Boomtown, the season one and Freaktown, you know, we're yelling, we're screaming Boomtown at the top of our lungs. This doesn't deserve that level of uh, enthusiasm. This deserves a Boomtown. That, that's kind of the energy we're bringing today. Boomtown. Boomtown. It's just like, ugh, it's, it's, it really, it really made me uh, appreciate season one more. I could see season one at least gave me characters that for better or for worse, I cared about. I wanted to see them navigate the world and, and, and do things. And even when the things they were doing or the world they were navigating didn't make any sense, I could be like, well, Mostly on the strength of the performances of the actors who did a marvelous job by and large in this show. I could be like, I care about these people. But at this one, they took those characters and they stripped them down to the barest cliches. Uh, and doesn't really give you much to latch on to for season two. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Should we move on to episode three? Wannabe. It's all about the Spice Girls. <laughs> Rebecca De Mornay starts to try to join the Spice Girls, and then Kevin got really excited. This, sadly, was the first episode without Rebecca De Mornay. Yeah, this is where it started going downhill for old Kevin. <laughs> I was shocked. We're not even saying which one of us had those feelings. No, it might have been, been me. I think that's very plausible and Who pot knows? potentially exciting. Who knows? We don't know. <laughs> this is an unknown unknown. <laughs> it's a big. It's, it's the ultimate mystery of the episode. <laughs> this is the mystery to me. <laughs> well, uh, one mystery is resolved pretty early on in this episode. I think some people might be wondering what happened to Teresa. Yeah, the sassy 
dedicated paramedic. Played by Lana Perilla, who is an actress I, as I said it before, I loved in Once Upon a Time. Great actress. Love her. And I really enjoyed Teresa in season one. She's, to refresh everyone's memory, she's the plucky paramedic who really cares about her patients. Uh, you know, kind of written a bit flatly, sort of like a St. Teresa type where she wants to save everyone. But I feel like uh, the actress really brought kind of a, a vulnerability to the character and kind of a toughness that I enjoyed watching. So to me, she was the most fleshed out, interesting uh a female character from season one, which ain't saying much, but I preferred her to the uh, reporter whose name escapes me. Uh, and she wasn't in the first two episodes. She's in this episode. What's become of her? What's become of her? Well, she's become a cop. Oh, that makes sense. So uh, they don't, the only thing, the breadcrumbs we got in season one was a couple times Fearless and Joel are like, hey, you, you remembered the license plate number? You'd make a great cop. And we're supposed to take that as some sort of like indicator that this was foreshadowed. And it's like, I'm not saying they couldn't have made her a cop, but like they didn't write enough around her to make that choice make sense or feel earned. Instead, it just feels like they're trying to cram everyone they can into the cop circle so they don't have to like write separate storylines for EMT people. <laughs> Just feels like laziness. Like, oh, we don't, we, we can't afford a fucking fake ambulance. We need to get her in the cop car because that's what we already have on set. That's what it feels like. Um, and then speaking of fake cops. And cop cars. That's the whole central premise. You got a gun, bunch of guys, including a, a wannabe cop, uh, the titular wannabe, uh, who got rejected from the academy a bunch of times. They're going on a robbery spree where they pose as cops. And rob the place. And we're supposed to believe that this one person who's a wannabe cop, he spends all of his free time studying the city codes and laws. He's totally dedicated to the idea of being a police officer. Very law and order type. So obviously these robbers see this ultra dedicated person and think, well, this is the person I want to ask to go in on my robbery spree with me. And also, then, when he's asked this, he agrees, and so, which I don't understand. But he, part of it is, is when they commit these robberies, they're going to be dressed as cops. Y yes. And, like, they, in the course of this, one of them, the non-wannabe, the guy who's just a real robber, he kills one of Teresa's uh, fellow cadets at the academy. And there's a lot of bullshit between Teresa and Joel. In season one, Teresa sort of indicated that she had a crush on Joel, but we never really got Joel's response to that or, or whether he even realizes it fully because he's very much dedicated to his wife. And boy, does season two turn that on its head with no, for no reason, with no real backing. But uh, Teresa and Joel have all these tense conversations where She's kind of saying, I was I, I, I was going to tell you that I joined the Academy, but I, I just didn't know how to, and I wanted to keep my space. So it's like, it feels like they hooked up at some point, and then it ended badly, or that she like confessed her feelings to him, and he didn't reciprocate, and they were kind of becoming distant. And this is never clarified throughout the season, and it's to the real detriment of everything, because it's like, in a later episode, Joel's having like, sexual dreams about Teresa. So it's like, what exactly happened between them? And like, what the fuck is going on? And you have this awful scene. You, you remember what scene I'm talking about? Where, where they're lecturing her? Oh, yes, yes. Tell us about that. Because I think you were like, fuck this at that point. 
Uh, there's a scene where Teresa tries to do some investiga- investigative work on her own. And the two male detectives basically tell her she's a dumb broad and should leave the detecting work to the fellas. That's what Kevin always tells me before bed. But, you know, I, I was surprised to hear it on Boomtown season two. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you that before bed. I don't know. I was just. <laughs> what exactly do you do in bed that I'm trying to warn you against? What kind of detecting? That's when I go, that's when I break out the old uh, magnifying glass. Oh God! <laughs> oh no! No, I didn't. I didn't mean God. it like that. <laughs> I meant. To, <laughs> I meant like a detective. <laughs> this has gone off the rails. This went off the rails. Jesus! Why do I? Why do I always stumble into these things? I don't know. Oh my god! <laughs> I was just trying to think of a time like you'd say that. <laughs> I just, there was no hidden meaning in my words. I just, like maybe I've been doing detecting work all day, and then you're trying to get me to stop. <laughs> god, Jesus! Let's move on, shall we? My revenge for all that Rebecca De Mornay talk. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, well, the whole thing kind of comes to a head when uh, the robbers are revealed uh, and, and basically uh, the wannabe robber who wants to be a real cop ends up uh, uh, confronting a driver during a kidnapping in progress and uh, shooting the driver. The driver shoots him and, they, and it ends up saving a woman's life. And, and my thought on this episode Beyond the Teresa stuff and, and changing her character so much, because like we're led to believe that she never wants to take a life and police take lives. You know, I'll just throw that out there. It's not controversial to say that, you know, without getting into the politics of it, like they have guns, they can kill people. And, and that never really felt like Teresa. And maybe if something had happened to Teresa to make her go that way, then we could follow her character development from EMT to cop. But we don't even get that. It's just kind of generic stuff and she says like the best people i know are cops and it's like so she's like changing her entire profession because she has a crush on this dude that's if you write a if you write a deep character that can work for me but like without any real writing around it it's like you're just kind of having her do it for the sake of expedience and with um you know uh i thought there was a i thought there was an emotional core here though in this episode i'll say that there could have been I think you said that this was was the first of the three episodes that you felt could have been good. A bunch of rewrites, take out the Teresa stuff, having a guy who whose dream was to be a cop and seeing his downfall into being not a cop, actually a robber, but then he's trying to maybe does something to redeem himself at the end. That's that's not horrible. You could do something with that. You know, you could show how a dream can drive someone mad and then they get a warped sense of themselves, but then they can kind of try to come back from the brink. I I don't hate that. As it was executed, it's terrible. <laughs> but I, I don't hate the premise. Well, shall we move on to Haystack? Yeah, this, this Haystack didn't... Do you, do you remember the episode in the first season where Teresa is held hostage and ultimately saves herself in a dramatic fashion? Yeah. With an I've got good news for you, 
Haystack is basically a remake. In a mall. It's basically seized. It's Stranger Things 3 where they set it in a mall. This is in a mall, but it's what Kevin said. I also, I, this is all I'll say, but I don't know why they called it Haystack. What were they looking for? Do you even understand what that meant? No. You know? I was expecting like some sort of farm jamboree, but instead we just got this mall hostage situation. Which basically followed the same general beats that we saw in last season's episode where she was held hostage. Yup. It was not it was not in the least uh, suspenseful in my opinion. Oh, also also in this one we find out the big twist at the end is that Teresa was in uh was taken hostage in this men's clothing store and at the end it's revealed that she was buying a shirt for Joel for his birthday because it's his birthday that day and she had previously spilled coffee on his shirt and also he has a sex dream about her right before receiving a blow job from his wife on his birthday so um I'm I'm telling you that uh, I'm not giving you any idea of what it means or what we're supposed to take away because I honestly don't know what we're supposed to take away from any of that that's just what happens and it's as patently ridiculous I think as it sounds well I think if the big twist in the episode is that one character is buying a shirt for another that's a pretty weak episode (laughs) who is the shirt for Teresa it was for a friend Well, I would have preferred a blowjob, thanks. (laughs) 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 Is that also what I tell you when I make you put down your magnifying glass? I didn't say a goddamn thing. (laughs) I didn't say a goddamn thing. I didn't want want to walk into another double entendre. Uh, yeah, like it's like the writers of the season kept on falling into big plot holes, and I keep on walking around and falling into big double entendre traps. So, I I, I relate to them in that sense. <laughs> we both we both don't know where we're going, and it gets us into trouble sometimes. Uh, the next episode is a hole in the wall, gang, and. One of the problems with TV is that sometimes twists can be revealed by casting. And so I'll say that there's a mystery in this episode as to which character is ultimately responsible for the death of another character. And one of the characters is played by LeVar Burton, who was by far the biggest celebrity in the cast. And so you looked at me and said, well, he's obviously the guilty man. I think he's going to ride the reading rainbow to jail. And the other thing I'd like to say is that when we hit the first commercial break, you looked over at me and you said, Kevin, I'm unironically thoroughly enjoying this. Yeah, I was. Explain. Explain yourself. What the fuck were you thinking? <laughs> okay, well, okay. So the the, the premise of frat dude is from a from an african-american fraternity that's now defunct is found dead and you know covered in plastic in the wall of his old frat house and all these different frat brothers are suspects and i thought it was fun in the first kind of part of the story where we're meeting all the frat brothers and you know lavar burton did it or at least he's gonna have a big role in it 
but we are getting each of their stories that are slightly different of this kind of raucous party in the 80s and it's all it's all I just like the kind of unreliable narrator I felt like they that they kind of were able to play more with that in this episode than they had in season one and maybe I enjoy a little bit of unreliable narrator so what I mean by that is like all these different versions of this party you're hearing the song uh, let it whip blast in the background everyone's having a good time but then increasingly you're seeing different details and you know one guy saying oh we last saw him smoking a bong and then other people are saying it was cocaine and then other people are getting increasingly violent so seeing that and seeing different angles of the party made me smile and i thought it was kind of fun what where it really loses me is you have a big b plot where vanessa williams and uh uh mckelty williams i guess uh, uh detective fearless is it williamson oh uh, yeah McKelty Williamson, uh, who plays Detective Fearless, who unfortunately McKelty Williamson was great. I thought in season one he had he had a lot of charisma. It was a fun character, and I don't really feel like he gets any attention in this season at all, almost. And and here's one place where he gets, he got some attention. He got some attention in this episode. But they were just basically like pitting the two black leads against each other because. He's resentful that she went to college. She thinks he's stupid because he didn't go to college. And it's this like really contrived argument that you feel like this was written by white people. <laughs> like this was this is a conflict that was written by white people. It doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel like these two characters would be griping with each other over this. And it's so on the nose and so cringy that it takes away from the enjoyment of the episode. And then, um, you know, once they start try to start doing twists at the end, then it kind of all fell apart for me. But just seeing the old timey, you know, memories of this party, that was something I enjoyed. Did you enjoy? What bothered me was that the flashbacks to the party, we saw younger versions of the three men who did not look a thing like older versions of the three men, except that some of them had unflattering hair pieces. I don't really care about that. I'm just, I just, I like the Let It Whip song. So it was the song. <laughs> love the, love the Daz band. <laughs> Should we reveal the, the last twist? Yes. Do it. You do it. And then I'll complain about it. What was the last twist? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to leave that in. Yeah, I know. <laughs> So LeVar Burton, like, hit this guy and thought he killed him. And then later he and his buddies come and they wrap the person up tightly in plastic and they stuff him in a wall. And so the big twist is it turns out that this person died of asphyxiation because he was wrapped up in the plastic. And so for that to work, these three college-educated young men would have had to fail to notice that this person that they feared was dead was actually breathing. And also, it shows him waking up and suffocating sometime after he's in the wall. And if being wrapped in plastic causes you to be cut off from air, wouldn't he immediately have asphyxiated and struggled to breathe as they were wrapping him up in the plastic and stuffing him in the wall? Yes to all of that. It was dumb and it was offensive and I, I didn't need to see a guy like 
dying of, of asphyxiation beneath plastic at, at the conclusion of the episode. I thought it was, I was like, okay, no. I just wanted to listen to Let It Whip. <laughs> You're a simple woman. I just came here to have a good time. <laughs> it was, it just felt mean spirited. And it, the whole episode kind of felt like weirdly victim blamey because, you know, Basically, at the end of the episode, the detectives were like, yeah, that guy was a huge asshole, but we feel bad for his parents. And I guess, like, that can, that maybe is the case in certain crimes, but it just, just felt like, okay. Oh, but don't worry, he didn't die a painless death. He didn't suffocated to death. And they also, they say, like, they say, oh, he died very painlessly. And my question, Kevin, is if this, if this murder goes to trial, which I assume it will, or even if it, I mean, aren't the parents going to figure out eventually that he died of asphyxiation if they request any information on it? Yes. Or coroner's report? Is this, yes, all that stuff would be public record. Yeah, all that stuff would be public record. So they, if they, they're just basically saying, oh, the parents are, don't care enough to do any sort of research on this. Exactly. And so that felt offensive. It's like, you don't want to be lied to. You don't want to, oh, he, he was sang away by a choir of angels and had a, had a great death. And then you find out he died in a horrible way. And like, who does that? That's just, that's just cowardice on the part of the detectives and, and unprofessionalism. And we, you know, the whole thing that I liked about some of these characters in season one was that they, they seem committed to the job and like doing a good job and being there for the families of the victims and whatever. And it's like, now they're just doing whatever feels good to the writers, which is often just dumb shit. <laughs> now let's get down to the big picture. Now let's not say who, <laughs> but one of the two of us, uh, felt that one of the actresses in this, Virginia Madsen, one of the two of us thought that she was very sexy in 1990 in a movie called The Hot Spot. Doesn't matter who, but I just, I just feel that information should be part of it. Now, why don't you start telling us what this episode was okay, about? Season two, you know, I <laughs> season two really worked out for Kevin. Let's just say that. <laughs> you got to revisit with some old friends. <laughs> Tell us the plot of this one. I would need to find a detective show where all these uh, sexy hunks are on it for me, and then I'll be like, "Oh yeah," <laughs> and you'll be you'll be steaming and shaking your fists at the at the television. <laughs> this is a parade of Kevin's old babes. These were women I was attracted to when I was a very young man. Now that I have more refined tastes, I know the only woman in the world that's worthy of being attracted to is one Anya Kane Greenland. Aww, what a sweetie. <laughs> yeah, I love you. <laughs> well, uh, uh, you could say a lot of things against me, but I've never been in Boomtown season two. <laughs> so I think I have a leg up on all these dames. <laughs> um, what, what were we talking? Okay, yeah, the big picture. This is the, the final ever episode of Boomtown. And I would argue, and I'll, I'll explain why at the end, but I'll leave you this to chew on as we discuss. Um, I would argue that this in some ways represents a, a beautiful and accurate microcosm of what happened to Boomtown, the series. Now let's, let's discuss. <laughs> so um, it starts with sort of an interesting premise. I think one that Kevin and I both would have enjoyed in the hands of uh, better writers, <laughs> but Tom and Ray working together again, finally, after both being basically the, uh, the rotating assistant for whatever detective needs them this season. Um, they both, they get a call, domestic disturbance. They go to the house of a big celebrity actor. Uh, I'm sorry, a big celebrity uh, director. And 
Uh, there's a director, by the way, is played by Howard Hessman, TV's Dr. Johnny Fever. Johnny Fever. But uh, Johnny Fever uh, is, is a suspicious man tonight because he's with a young blonde lady played by uh, Virginia Madsen. And um, there's the, the director is immediately saying, oh, everything's fine. We're just going over lines. But Tom notices that the blonde lady seems very, very upset. And he's trying to kind of like, is everything okay? Can we take you out of here? Kind of like trying to get her out of there. But she is just kind of like, everything's fine. It's fine. It's fine. So they leave. And Tom feels bad about it. He feels like he did everything by the book, but he didn't listen to his gut. His gut was that this woman was in trouble. So then next we hear the woman's roommate who is Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica. TV Starbuck, Katie Sackhoff. Yeah. She is uh, reporting the woman missing, saying she got a mysterious call from her saying she needed to be picked up, but hung up and now no one can find her. When they, uh, when, when the detectives, Joel and Fearless go to the director's house, they find a bloody towel and uh, grab it. And basically, you know, Tom is just racked with guilt. Tom is like becoming obsessed with this woman. He goes to their apartment that, that she shares with Starbuck and uh, looks in the floor and finds all these nude pictures that Kevin was shocked by. Kevin couldn't even believe that they put these on TV, frankly. We were meant to believe that these pictures are shocking and that even a jaded cop like Tom can't be can't quite believe that such things exist. But then for some reason, they make the mistake of showing us the pictures. And they're like very, very tame. I think these are pictures that could have been shown on television on an episode of I Love Lucy. Kevin sees pictures like this for breakfast. <laughs> CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. They, uh, you know, so instead of like, you could have just done it where like, you know, frankly, less is more sometimes with storytelling. Maybe you just see Tom's reaction. Maybe you don't see the photos. Then we can, we're left to guess what horrific things are in them. But, uh, you know, it, it seems it's becoming clear to everyone that this woman was kind of a failed actress. She started off uh, all chipper and all, you know, youthful and has sort of like spent her youth chasing roles that she never gets. And it's just a sad story. And her boyfriend loves her but is sick of this lifestyle and wants to move away from La La Land and, and get a real life. And uh, at some point he seems sort of suspicious because he's very jealous of her and because she was, you know, was was likely cheating on him with this director and uh, I guess, I, do we reveal the big twist? Yeah, go ahead. The director turns up dead. And then it turns out it was not the boyfriend. It was 
Virginia Madsen herself. See, the director that night that uh, Tom interacted with them had sex with her, or like a night previous or whatever. They had sex, and he at some point promised her a role in his next big movie. Uh, but he had reneged on that, and uh, when she showed up to the movie, she realized she was just going to be a featured extra. So she went back to his house and screamed at him, and uh, they had a fight. She broke something, and that's how she, the blood got on the towel. She left. She goes into hiding for a few days using her collection of wigs. Then she comes back to the director's house and demands a part and does this whole like sob story. But then it turns out she's just acting, baby. It's just the craft. And um, he still says he won't give her a role. They scuffle for the gun that he has and she shoots him. Or he's shot in the melee. And then she goes on the run and then Tom basically grabs her at the the train station where she's waiting to leave and says, you know, I, you know, you're, you're one hell of an actress, baby. Or like, he doesn't literally say that, but <laughs> that's kind of the vibe. You know, when I met you, you told me you had quite a collection of wigs. I asked to see it. It was just pictures of Henry Clay and William Henry Harrison. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I love that. <laughs> That's why we're married. <laughs> Where else can I get that wig brand of humor? <laughs> uh, love, love history. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of. And here's where you know I said earlier on my thesis was that this was Boomtown in a nutshell. Boomtown broke out into the scene with season one with high hopes of being sort of a next level, uh, police procedural, you know, prestige show. With uh, multiple different viewpoints, viewpoints from the criminals themselves, something to humanize them, uh, you know, as well as the victims, and you know, showing uh, you know these kind of uh, interesting characters that you know felt like they were they could be real humans doing a real job, and you know, those were very lofty aspirations that kind of and I would say within season one, the show either due to the stress of a, of a putting out a network TV show or meddling from the executives uh, started to decline in quality in terms of its writing. But, you know, the actors still did a great job. And then by season two, like, they just had nothing to work with. So things really took a further slide. And that feels like Virginia Madsen. She starts out, she's getting, she's going for these big parts. Maybe something will happen. Maybe she gets a little thing here and it gives her hope. And then eventually she's just being cast as like the mom or the like old friend and, or, you know, all these just depressing things. And by the end, she's doing commercials and she looks so bedraggled and depressed and it's just not working out for her. And for me, unfortunately, that's sort of what happened with Boomtown. You know, it, it's sad, but, you know, what for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. It's a massive failure. And that's how we bid Boomtown. That's how we bid a dude Boomtown. To Kevin, you know, I've talked I've gone I've I've talked your ear off about how I felt about season 1 versus season 2 and you you know, you said you didn't, you know, you said they both suck in their own way, but I mean, would you agree that season 1 had something that season 2 just did not? Season 1 was uh better than season two but i I don't believe that season two's badness 
retroactively made season one better. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, it makes me feel bad for criticizing it so harshly, but I, I agree with you in general. But I, to me, what what for you did season one have that season two did not? It felt like in season one, the creators were making exactly the show they wanted to make, even if it took them in some crazy and frankly stupid directions. And there was something fun and entertaining and rewarding about watching someone express themselves completely just as they are and how they, how they want. This obviously f- was different. It felt more like it had been focus grouped and focus tested and meddled with. And it did not feel like anyone's vision of anything. It just felt like a generic, uh, mediocre cop show. Yeah, I completely agree. Just sad. It was kind of sad. It was like seeing seeing kind of a quirky thing that was kind of its own weird thing, you know, just kind of get pulverized into just generic police procedural. And the reason why people remembered Boomtown at all, or if, if anyone does remember it, it's because I think it's because of the characters. I think the characters were... Maybe more credit goes to the actors than the writers, frankly, in most cases. But I think the characters are memorable. And season two doesn't allow the characters any room to kind of breathe or be their own thing. Yeah, I agree. If you had to sum up your reaction to Boomtown in a single sentence or a pithy phrase, a five-star final review, if you will, how would you do that? I would say that season two of Boomtown would be more accurately titled Bus Town. Boomtown. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore two underscore me underscore. And at Mystery to Me Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at Mystery to Me Podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T O. Thanks, Thanks so, so much, much for, for listening. listening. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader new cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.